remaining in this room, then you are not going to junior church. So have your Bibles turned to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1. Today we begin a journey through this book. So the title of the series is Looking to Jesus from Shadow to Reality. And so let me just start uh, by giving some information about the book, some context. We'll start with what we don't know. We don't know who the author was. We don't know when it was written. We don't know where it was written or to whom it was written to. Perfect. Uh, now, that's not to say we don't know anything. There's uh, uh, much we do know, but the actual specifics of those, we don't know specifically. Now, in chapter 13, we read that the author knew Timothy. In 13.22, we read uh, that he writes, Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So it appears he's writing to the church of Rome. Looks like he's writing back to the church that's there, which would make sense. Uh, Clement, one of the first leaders uh, of the church in Rome, quoted the book of Hebrews in the first century and brought him water. It was wonderful. Um, thank you. Uh, when it comes to who wrote the book, I'm sure you've all heard, it's this guy, it's this guy, it's this guy. We, we don't know. Some have said, Paul, I, I'm convinced it's not any of the apostles, because in chapter 2, verse 3, we read that the author says he has heard the gospel from those who heard it from Jesus, which means he's not one of the first-hand recipients from Jesus, but it's rather coming now second-hand from him, or third-hand from him. So he's not one of the apostles. And when it comes to the church, based upon the letter, we can, we can understand most likely who they were. Very likely, uh, it could have been an all-Jewish congregation, but most likely, it was made up of Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome. And we know this because as you go throughout the book of Hebrews, there is many, many Old Testament quotations and references just littered throughout the entire book. Now, when we come to this book, it's different than all the other letters that we have in the New Testament. It lacks any formal greeting, any introduction, any prayer, any thanksgiving. In fact, it begins more like a sermon, and that's, that's really what it is. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 22, the author will refer to his book, to the book of Hebrews, as a word of exhortation, which is another way of saying this is a sermon. And so it's kind of like this sermon letter. It's a little bit of both. So then the question that we always come to with every New Testament book is, well, why was it written? What was the purpose of this book, of this sermon letter? What was it trying to accomplish? And one thing as we go throughout this book uh, is that we see the pastor He's very pastoral in the way he comes alongside the church. He's encouraging the church to remain in the faith, to persevere in the faith and not fall away. In chapter 10, we read the church has endured a great deal of persecution. They've been arrested. They've been beaten. They've been publicly shamed. They've had their property taken from them. So they begin to experience what it means to carry the cross of Christ. And in chapter 12, we read that it doesn't appear that they've experienced martyrdom yet, which is why we would probably say this letter took place in the mid to late 60s. That's most likely the dating of it, because after that, under Nero, Christians were much more heavily persecuted and martyred. 
So what we have here is the members of this church are beginning to question their faith. They're beginning to drift from their faith, from their belief in Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps they're wanting to return to Judaism. After all, Judaism was legal in Rome, whereas Christianity was illegal. But what we see is the church is tired. They're worn out. They likely see that on the horizon, persecution is only going to increase. And they're just wondering, is it worth it? Are we going to stay in this? Is this what we signed up for? Is this really what we believe? Now, I just want you to think, as we go from there, we could say that this situation is really not very different from many countries today in this world. For there are many countries where it is illegal to be a Christian. You can be thrown in jail, beaten, disowned by your family. You can be even killed. We support 18 guys out here in the foyer in another country where they regularly are risking their lives. You know we have brought instances and examples of them and prayed for them here in this service where they've been arrested wrongly, where they've been held without bail, where they've had their property stolen from them. And so the things that they're experiencing in Hebrews, we're seeing it has been experienced throughout church history all the way to the present. And I'm sure that even while we have not experienced physical suffering and persecution necessarily here in America, we know people who have wandered from the faith. I know people, I'm sure you know people, I've known people who have lost a loved one and therefore they've walked away from the faith. They've said, if, they're, if God is real, there's no way he would have let this happen to whoever their loved one was. I've seen people be lured away because of their love of possessions or because of a relationship. I've seen people walk away because just the social pressures of their peers, just the constant pressure of, are you really Christian? Are you really going to believe that? So they've walked away. I've seen others abandon the faith because of trials. Often when those trials become those marathons, you know, they're not over in a night or in a week, but they carry on longer and longer. And we begin to be tired and we go, Really? I thought, I thought becoming a Christian, there was going to be more blessings. I thought, I thought it was going to be easier to be a Christian. And so people have wandered from the faith. Probably one of the most prevalent reasons I've seen people leave the church is because they've been hurt by other people in the church. Have you seen that? I've seen that firsthand by, by many people. In fact, I think, you know, unfortunately, there's this saying, and I'm sure you've heard it, that only the church shoots the wounded. It's a sad reality. It's, it's true. We often see that in church. And still others that I'm sure you know, that I've known, they just leave the church for what appears to be simply random reasons. One day they're a Christian. One day they're affirming the faith. They're involved in the church. They're, they're everywhere in the church. And the next day, it just seems that they say, you know, forget about it. I'm done. And they just walk out the door never to come back again. Now maybe, maybe you know people like this. Maybe you've been one of these people and you've, you've walked away from church for years, for decades. And for whatever reason, uh, however God's grace came and he's brought you back into the church. Or maybe, maybe you're wrestling right now and you're going, am I going to persevere? Am I going to keep believing that Jesus Christ is Lord? Am I going to keep believing the truth of this Bible? And you're wondering what you're going to do. 
I want to say what I've seen in the church in over 17, 18 years in ministry now, perseverance, I think, is one of the, the areas within Christianity, that, especially here in America, that I see lacking more and more than almost anything else within the church. There are many, many reasons people leave the church. And in Hebrews, he's going to talk about the necessity of perseverance. And what he wants us to know is that real faith, real genuine faith, is faith that perseveres. It lasts. It's not a one-time decision. It's not a faith that checks the box, says I'm Christian, and that's all there is to it. But it is a lifelong pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so, so this is the context of the church. So then the question is, so what's the solution? What is the author going to do to encourage the church to persevere? How do we continue to run the race, fight the good fight? How is it that we battle discouragement in our Christian life? Well, this is why Hebrews was written, and this is what, um, what we're going to see as we begin to make our way through. And the author is going to do two things primarily throughout the book to encourage the church. Number one, he's going to exalt the supremacy of Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, he exalts Jesus Christ. He wants us to know who Jesus is, what he has done, and how he has fulfilled all that took place in the Old Testament. In fact, that's where we get the series title, Looking to Jesus from Shadow to Reality. When we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the, the priesthood, the priests and the sacrifices, the temple, when we look at the entire Old Covenant, all of these things were shadows pointing to a greater reality to Jesus Christ. And so what the author is going to do throughout the book is show how Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Jesus is the greater priest. Jesus is the greater prophet. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the entire old covenant. He says these are all shadows preparing us, pointing us to Jesus. We joke around here at times that Every, you know, Sunday school answer is Jesus, unless if it's Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, we, we joke around, it's always Jesus. And there is a lot of truth to that. And it is good to know that. It's good for our kids to know, yes, it's Jesus. The answer to every question is Jesus is the answer. He is our hope. But cute sayings are not what's going to sustain our faith. There must be meat in our faith. There must be content. We must have truth. That's what he wants to do in this letter. He wants to pack our faith full of truth and content, that it would be robust and full so that we would see the beauty of Christ and we would never imagine walking away from him. Secondly, the author is going to give warnings, and these warnings are meant to make you and I uncomfortable. So many people just try to glaze over the readings or, or lessen them. He wants them to make us uncomfortable because what he wants to do is show that if we were to abandon this faith, if we were to turn our backs on Christ and we were to turn to Judaism or any other religious system, the eternal consequences of that and the judgment that we will experience will be far greater than any finite, temporary suffering or persecution that we could experience here on earth so those are two things he's going to do he's going to exalt the supremacy of christ he's going to give us these warnings all in this means of he's pleading with us persevere run the race never take your eyes off of jesus one professor 
at Southern Seminary, this is what he said, Jim Hamilton. He said, this book is not an evangelizing letter calling for conversion, but it's a discipling letter calling for perseverance, growth in holiness, and a deeper perception of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And so that is my prayer as we begin this book. My hope and my prayer is that our faith in Jesus would grow deeper and sweeter because of this book. May we love Christ more and may our faith be unwavering in our opposition throughout the rest of our lives until we wait for Christ to return. So that is my prayer. That is what Hebrews is written for. And so what I want to do is encourage you now to stand and we're going to read the first three verses of this letter. And these, let, these first three verses, I'm sure many of you know them. It just exalts Christ from the very, very beginning. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father, this, this is an amazing book. It's a testimony of your grace to us. In this book, we see the beauty, the supremacy, the sufficiency of your son, Jesus Christ. We see that there is no other name under heaven in which we might call, which would save us from our sins, but Jesus alone saves us. And I pray that as we make our way in this book, and as we begin to dive in today, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would grow strong, that our faith would be full of robust meat and truth that we would see that we would taste the beauty of your son that we would see the foolishness of trusting in worldly possessions or any type of idol or any type of relationship anything other than you and so lord i pray as we make our way through this book increase our love for you increase our love for one another may we May we understand that as a church, you have called us to spur one another on, to hold one another accountable, to be family with one another, that we would encourage and help each other, that we would all finish the race. And so, Lord, I pray, strengthen us today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So, again, homework, just read the book of Hebrews over and over. I'm excited about this book. I hope you're excited. Uh, we're going to dig in. First thing, I just want you to see, God speaks. Like, just don't miss that. God speaks. Verse 1, God spoke. Don't blow past those first just few words. Our God has made himself known. You realize that? I mean, because he is the creator of everything... He is thus outside of creation. Creation comes from God. 
He is self-existent, and therefore he is outside of creation. And thus, if he does not reveal himself, we would not truly know him. It is necessary that he speaks if we are to know who God is. And so when we open up the Bible, what the author wants us to know from the very beginning is that God speaks, and we are encountering God. First thing he wants to know, that our God has spoken. And so then we say, well, what has he spoken to us about? In the past, God's revelation was gradual and fragmented. That's the second point. In the past, God's revelation was gradual and fragmented. We read in verse 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the words, many times, in many ways, is not just merely referring to the diversity of ways that God has communicated himself. But rather, I found it really helpful. One of the theologians said, those words mean that his revelation was fragmentary, incomplete, and gradual in character. Not meaning that it was wrong. It was accomplishing exactly what God was, was doing at that time. You see, when we go into the Old Testament, we read of all these prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, um, Jonah. We can just begin naming them all. And they would all communicate in different ways. Some of them would preach. Some of them came to rebuke. Some of them acted out the very message of God. And some of them came and they did signs. But But with all of them, with each prophet, God's revelation of himself increased, and we grew to understand more of who he was. We understood more of his faithfulness, more of his righteousness, more of his justice. But at the same time, as we're making our way prophet by prophet through the Old Testament, we're beginning to understand, Israel's beginning to understand the depravity of their sin. I mean, when you make your way through the Old Testament, you find yourself agreeing with like when Jeremiah says in 17 verse 4, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Or in Psalm 14, verse 3, when David writes, there is no one who does good, not even one. I mean, you find yourself looking at the Israelites and you're going, their animal sacrifices did nothing for themselves. They're not clean. They're not holy now. These animal sacrifices are not purifying their consciences. And what we see is that the kings all throughout the Old Testament... Even the good kings, none of them are perfect. None of them lead in perfect righteousness. And so constantly we're just being faced with our helplessness because of sin. We're being faced with the fact that we need a greater sacrifice. We need a greater king. We need a greater priest. We need a greater prophet who has a greater word for us. We need a greater covenant. I I think it's kind of helpful. Think of the Old Testament like a, like a gigantic puzzle. And with every prophet, we're having more and more pieces are formed together. So we're beginning to see the picture. But even once we come to the end of the Old Testament, there are still many pieces left that are not put in. And so we don't see it perfect. We're not understanding how does this whole puzzle, how does it picture the grace of God? How does it address our sin problem? And so what we begin to realize as we come into the New Testament and what the author of Hebrews wants us to know is that the Old Testament was pointing us towards something. Or to say it was pointing us towards someone. It was pointing us towards the person who will actually 
deal with our sin problem. It was pointing us to the person who fulfills all the shadows, you know, the priests, the sacrifices, all of those things that took place in the Old Testament, that Jesus comes and fulfills, that he would be the true priest, the true sacrifice, and he would bring forth a new covenant. And so that's why when we come to Jesus, we see that he is the final and full revelation of God. Look at verse 2. He says, in these last days, so he's bringing up a contrast. This is how he has spoken, and he did so through the prophets, but now in these last days, he's not referring to the second coming of Christ. He's not referring to that, but what he's referring to is that now in the time of fullness, the time of completion, now we see all those things in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ. When we rightly see Jesus, all the puzzle pieces in the Old Testament, they come together. And now in, in 4K or in 8K or is there anything above 8K right now? I don't know if 16K exists right now. I don't even think you can see 8K. But anyways, that's how we now see the picture. That's how we now begin to understand the grace of God. Jesus now reveals to us what God was doing all throughout the Old Covenant. He points and he shows that he is the fulfillment of them. And so that in Jesus, we now understand what the priests were doing. We understand what the sacrifices were pointing us to. We understand what all the kings and all the prophets were pointing us to. They were pointing us to Jesus. And notice what the author says. He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So just stop there. Who is he talking to? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church, right? So we got a guy who's not an apostle. He's heard the message from the apostles, and now he's giving the message to the church so that they would hear from God. He said, do you want to hear God speak? He speaks to us in Jesus. Really, the church of Hebrews is in the same position as we are so as the author is writing to them he's writing to us and he's saying god has now spoken to us in jesus do you know that there are so many people today and you've heard them they say we just want a fresh word from jesus we just need something new if only god would give us a new revelation or or they've said things man i just wish i could hear the voice of god have you ever heard that? Maybe you've said that. You said, man, if I could just hear God's voice. And, and what, what is the author telling us right here? In this book, in these pages, you hear the word of God. His voice thunders from this book. If we want to hear the voice of God, we turn to Scripture where Jesus is the full and final and definitive revelation of God. What better do you want than that? Now just, think, just think of that. When people are saying, we just need something fresh. Fresher, fuller, more definitive than Christ? What is that? It doesn't exist. And so when we come to Scripture, he's saying, guys, God has spoken to us right here. Let me tell you who Jesus is. And I explained Jesus, this is God speaking to us now. So I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at, where you've been wrestling, you say, man, I just want to hear God. Know that when you open this book, you hear from God every time. 
Isn't that good news? Like we don't need to rely on these other means or ways. We have a sure revelation of God. And it is full and it is final and it is definitive. And everything that's in this book. That's what happens when we come here. So know God's speaking as we come in this book. This is why we do what we call expositional preaching. We want to just bring forth the word of this book. Because you don't need to care about anything I have to say. If I say something and can't back it up from the book, then who cares? Right? You don't need my opinions. You don't need my thoughts. We need Christ. That's what we need in our faith. That's what's going to persevere us. And so that's what we try to practice here every week that we come. When Charles Spurgeon, he opened up this, this passage on May 21st, 1882, and this is what he says. I just think it's perfect. He says, I have nothing to do tonight but preach Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do. That's what this text does. That's what we want to do every week. So now, let's just pause for a moment. I want to recap. By telling us that God has spoken to us, He's whetting our appetite for what's about to come. Because he's now going to give us seven truths on why the revelation of Jesus Christ is better than everything that comes before and why it would be absolutely foolish to turn from him. He's going to put meat to our faith. Now remember, the church is struggling in their faith. They're wrestling with, are we going to persevere? They're doubting. They're struggling with anxiety. Maybe depression is setting. They're going, can we do this? So the answer to their anxiety, the answer to their fears, the answer to can we do this is not the author coming and leaning over and saying, I got six steps for you on how you can persevere in your faith. He doesn't say, let me give you three steps on how to be a better neighbor so your friends will like you and you won't experience persecution. That is not what you find in this letter. But when he says, let me tell you who Christ is. He says, I'm going to give you theology, specifically Christology, the study of Christ. He says, I'm going to serve to you this, this plate, and it's full of robust theology of Christ because that's what you need. That's what I need. If we're going to stand firm, it's not my opinions, it's not thoughts, it's not a six-step method, it's do we know Christ. Now, I want to encourage you as parents we all know the dangers our kids are going to face as they go from elementary to junior high to high school to college. What they need, if they're going to persevere, is they need to know Christ. And that's going to happen by you knowing Christ and by you coming alongside them and discipling them, shepherding them, and showing them in your own life how Christ is sufficient. All right, seven truths. And each of these could be a sermon but they're not going to be, so we're just going to make our way through them because the whole book is just going to unpack these further as we make our way through. Number one, Jesus is the heir of all things. What does that mean? It means everything belongs to Jesus. He has all authority. He doesn't come to us like a prophet. So right here in the very beginning, Jesus, or the author's making this comparison and contrast. Remember how the prophets came? It came to you representing authority. Now we have Jesus. He is authority. He is the heir of everything. He owns everything. Everything you see, he possesses. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. All things were created through him and, remember, for him. 
And that includes the church. Do you know that? Ephesians 1.18, we read that we, the church, are his inheritance. Isn't that good news? That means he looks at his body, at his bride, and he says, they are mine. And I will sanctify them. And I will prepare them for the day that I will return. Now think about how good this truth is. Think about the implications here. If Jesus has all authority, and he has all power, and he owns everything, what can thwart his purposes and plans? What? Nothing. So that means when we believe in Jesus Christ, we're guaranteed the forgiveness of our sins and the possession of eternal life. Nothing can separate us from his love. Going back to Romans 8. Nothing can. Why? Because he owns everything. He has all authority. And just to then build on that, next point, as we make our way through verse 2, it says, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the cosmic creator. Not just of earth, but of everything. John chapter 1, verse 3. As soon as we open up the, the Gospels, we read, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's pretty clear, right? If you can see it, he made it. Colossians 1.16, we just did part of this verse. Now we'll read the whole verse. For by him all things were created. In heaven, on earth, visible, unvi invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So you just tell me, what falls outside of that? I mean, heaven and earth kind of covers it, right? Visible and invisible kind of covers it. But then just to make sure, he starts going into the spiritual thrones and dominions, rulers. Whatever is created by God, by Jesus Christ. He is the agent in which everything came into existence. So this means he doesn't just own everything. He's the one who made everything. He spoke it into existence. Now think about the implications of this. If Jesus is the creator of everything, he doesn't just have, or if he's the heir of everything, he has, he has all authority. If he's the creator of everything, not only does he have all authority, but what also does he have? All power. All power. Because all of life derives, depends upon its existence from him. He has he owns everything. He's all-powerful. He's eternal. He's self-existent. And so then you might say, and maybe, maybe the church is saying, but how? Who, who can be like that? Who has that kind of power and authority? For that, we go to verse 3. Next point. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Now, like it would just be so fun just to spend some time here on how in Jesus we see the very glory of God. But again, that's what the whole book is going to do, so we're just going to touch on it here. So now when I say radiance, don't think reflection. All right, so Jesus is not like what the moon is towards the sun. The sun is glorious and bright, and the sun or the moon merely reflects the radiance of the sun. That's, that's not what Jesus is. Because Jesus is the very light and rays beaming forth 
from the glory of the Father. So when we look at the sun on those rare days that we see the sun, so you've got to kind of imagine this here in Washington, um, we don't actually see just the sun. We see the light emitting forth from it. We see the rays coming, which I think take like eight minutes to get to us. We see the rays emitting from the sun. You cannot see the sun without seeing the very light radiating forth from it. That's what Christ is to the Father. You cannot see the Father without the very glory of Christ beaming forth from him. What he wants us to know that Jesus is co-equal with the Father. He shares in the very glory that the Father have. He is not a part of creation. He is not the first of all the created order, like God made Jesus, and he just made him a little bit better than all of us, and then Jesus makes everything else. No, rather, what we have is Jesus is one with God, shares in his very glory, and when we see the Father, we see the glory. Which brings us to the next point. Jesus is the exact image of God. And what he's kind of building on here is this exact image. Back then, when you would take a coin, it would be made from a die. And so you'd have this die. And as it stamped its image on the coins, the coins would be all the exact same image that was on the die. And so Jesus is the exact image of of God, which is why in John 14, 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you know that? So when we come into these pages and God says, I've spoken to you, and then we read all about Jesus, and we go, well, how do we understand anything about the Father then? Because when we look at Jesus, we also see the Father. And now some of you might be wondering, so wait, is Jesus the Father and is the Father the Son? Are they just like the same? No. One of the things we see throughout Scripture is this truth called the Trinity, which we're not going to unpack today. What we understand is there is a Father, Son, Spirit, three persons, yet one God, one essence, but three persons. We need to remember that God's not made in our image, but we're made in His image. And so there is a very big distinction. There is a creator, creature distinction. We need to maintain that. So we're going to understand a lot about God, but there's going to be some things, even in his very being, it's mysterious to us. After all, if he's infinite, he's full of glory, he's perfect in every way, there's going to be a few differences, and we're not going to be able to wrap our head around everything. I said last week we're going to do a series on, on baptism. Probably after that we'll do a series on Trinity, because I think it would be good for us to be able to more unpack this. So Jesus is the very image of God. He's not a little less than God, but he's fully God. So when we put our faith in Jesus, we're putting our faith no less than the very one who owns everything, who is equal and co-equal with the Father. Next, we see Jesus sustains all of creation. We read, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only did Jesus make all of creation, but he's not like Atlas. Remember Atlas, like the Greek god, and he, and he holds the earth just passively on his back. He just kind of sits back there. That's not what Jesus does, but rather with a word, with his constant involvement, he sustains all of creation. Do you get that? Like, he's the one who keeps 
the earth rotating around the sun. He's the one who maintains the laws of thermodynamics and a bunch of other science that I don't really understand. He's the one who keeps all those going. Like, he's the reason science works. Like, it's just foolish when the world says, you know, Christianity and science just doesn't really work. Really? Because if you didn't have a God who sustains everything at all times, this world would just collapse upon itself in a moment because what we're told is that the only reason life continues and is sustained is because Jesus sustains it. Which means when we kind of drive that down even more personally, the reason you're alive right now and I'm alive and my heart is beating and your lungs are breathing is because Jesus wills it right now. Do you know that? All of life. Sustained by this son, who the author is preaching to us. Now just pause for a moment. Just think, just think what he's doing. The author is, is just exalting Christ. He's making sure that we're seeing how grand and powerful and wise and glorious and beautiful Jesus is. He wants us to know that Jesus is... The object of our faith is no mere man. He is something far greater. So he's saying, persevere. This is our God. This is our King. This is our Savior. And now he's going to drive it in even more personally because he wants us to know, how is it that this God who sustains everything now solves our biggest sin problem? And so we go to the next point. Jesus purifies us from our sins. That's what we read. After making purification for sins, he sits down at the right hand of God. He's the one who solves our sin problems. So right here in the first few verses, the author just goes right into the gospel. So how is it that Jesus does this? How is it he makes purification for sins? How is it the one who made everything purifies us? What we know as we go through the book, through the Bible, is that Jesus came in the flesh. He became like you and I. And this is where Christianity differs from every other religion. All other religions say, if you, if you want eternal life, you want forgiveness of sins, you want whatever utopia that you can imagine, your good works better outweigh your bad works. You better do a really good job. You've you got to earn your way to heaven. You've got to earn your way to whatever that reward is. And yet when we come to God's word, we just continue to come to the reality we are not good enough. And so instead of us going to God, in the Bible we see God comes to us, and he makes himself a man. This is why we read that Jesus leaves heaven. He lays aside his glory. He becomes like you and me, born of a virgin. He experienced puberty. Isn't that weird? He experienced voice cracks. That's weird. He learned how to shave. He knew what it was like to be hungry and to be tired. Like he experienced humanity because he came as one of us. And while he was like us in every single way, there was one area that he was not like us. He had no sin. He had no sin. He was perfect. This is why he came, so he could pay the price for us. What we read in God's word is because of our sin. We've offended God. We're guilty before him. We've disobeyed his law and his rule. Therefore, we, we're under his wrath, under his punishment, and there's nothing you and I can do. 
And animals, you can sacrifice them all day long, but they're not good enough to stand in your place and my place. I mean, what's a sheep going to do if we kill it instead of you? How does that atone for a human sacrifice? How does a bull atone for your sins? What we need is a perfect person, but when we come through the Bible, and you can even look at our own experience, we know there is none who's good. So Jesus comes as the perfect substitute, that he would be the perfect priest who offers the perfect sacrifice himself, that he would then die and save us from our sins, that he would absorb God's wrath for us. Hebrews 10, 14 says this, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you know that? For all time, one sacrifice, perfected. Romans 10, 9 says this, because of who Christ is, because of the sacrifice, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you know that? Isn't that a good promise? Why? Because he's the God, man, who came and died for us. So the author is pleading with the church saying, why would you turn from this God? What other Savior will you turn to? You know there's no man good enough. And there is no other God. And so this one true God became flesh to live and die that we could have life everlasting. Who are you going to turn to? We must persevere because he is the one name under heaven in which we can be saved and forgiven. And then he goes to his last point. And it's now this Jesus who sits on the throne of God ruling over all of creation. Do you know that? Jesus sits. We can easily glaze over that. Jesus sits. Oh, he sits on the throne. That's what you do, right? But why is it important that he sits? Because when you go in the Old Testament, there's not one other Old Testament priest that sits. Do you know that? Do you know why? Because their job was never done. There's always another sacrifice to be made for themselves and for other people. They're always at work. It was a bloody job being a priest. They're covered in blood all day long. And when the day gets over, guess what they're going to do tomorrow? Make more sacrifices. And you know what they're going to do the next day? They had their whole year planned out on day one. We're just going to keep making sacrifices. Why? Because we're sinful. And these animals don't actually atone for our sins. They're all pointing to one who will atone for us, Jesus Christ. And the reason he sits is because his death in his resurrection, his sacrifice was absolutely fully sufficient. So there will never, ever be another sacrifice given again. Do you know that? Sacrificial system is ended. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament point to the reality of Christ. This is why on the cross Jesus says what? Those three words, it is finished. Isn't that good news? It's done. No more animal sacrifices. No more shadows. The reality has come. Let me just tell you this. There will never, ever, ever, we'll just keep going, ever, ever, ever be a day that we need to reinstitute Old Testament sacrifices. To do so would be to rip out the book of Hebrews from your Bibles. It would be to say that the sufficiency of Jesus Christ was not enough. Any Old Testament sacrifice, because they all 
point to Christ. So any reinstitution of a sacrifice would be it wasn't enough in Christ. They're done. He sits. He rules as a king, but not any regular king. He's this priest king which we'll get into in the weeks to come because there's no other priest king within the people of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. So Jesus is a unique king. Holds both titles, priest and king. And we'll get to that. So the message is persevere. He's calling us. So as Timberline, we're called to persevere in the faith. There are countless idols There are countless pressures that you face, that I face, that want to lure us away from Jesus. Satan wants nothing more to shipwreck you from your faith. Do you know that? He wants nothing more than to shipwreck your faith. But we can persevere because when we come to this word, this Bible, God speaks. And we see Jesus. He he speaks to us through Christ We need no better word than God's word. It's this word that's going to sustain us. It's this word that will sustain you, sustain your family, sustain your loved ones. It's this word that will save those whom you are sharing the gospel with. And it's this word that's going to help us persevere in our faith. You might be here, and you're in a difficult marriage, and you're wondering, how how am I supposed to continue in my faith? Is God even with me? And the message is, yes, his grace is sufficient for you because of he purchased you at the cross. Maybe you're in singleness and you're, you're wrestling through. Does God have a will for me? I want to be married or I want this or I want that. How am I supposed to persevere? Has God forgotten about me? No. What we're going to see as we go throughout this book is that God knows you very intimately. He died for you. He keeps you. He will persevere you. And his grace is sufficient for you. Maybe you're in a trial. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's a disease, maybe it's a relationship. And you're going, how can God be good and let me go through this? And what we're going to see is his grace is sufficient. You are not going through a trial because of God's wrath. That's been swallowed up at the cross. So God is using this as a means of advancing his glory and his kingdom in the world and growing you and your holiness. You might be wondering as as times increase... Persecution increases in our world. Can I carry the cross? Can I persevere? Yeah. Because when we go to Hebrews 12, one man, one of my, I I love Hebrews 12. He says, therefore, since we have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. You know why? Because he says, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the glory of God. Persecution precedes glory. And as we run the race, God's going to use the trials in your life, in my life, and what we experience in this, in this church as a means of purifying us, as a means of strengthening us. He will give us grace all day long. So we will finish the race and we will experience the eternal glory of God. Isn't that good news? Like he says, run the race. Why? Because Christ has run and now we look to him. Whole book, look to Jesus. As John Piper says, he uses this analogy and I think it's pretty good. When we come to this word, he transforms our fragile spines into unbendable bars of steel. 
That's my prayer for our faith and for us as a church as we go through this book. So let's pray. Father, Father, Hebrews is a good book. Your grace abounds in this book. Your glory is shouted from every single page and every single word. And I pray that you would strengthen us and make our faith firm. May our faith, like the roots of an oak tree, grow deep and grow strong, that we would be unwavering in any opposition. I pray for the parents here. Oh, may we deepen in our faith that we would love you more and we would disciple and raise and shepherd our children in a way that they would see your son Jesus with all of his beauty and with all of his glory. I pray that we as a church would be so concerned with one another that we would love one another, we'd build one another up, we would hold one another accountable, we would spur each other on in the faith, that we would all finish the race together. God, I pray you, you say in Isaiah that every time your word goes forth, you accomplish your purpose. So I pray in this book and every message that we preach, accomplish your, per- your purpose. Persevere us. Increase our faith. Strengthen us. May we trust in you more. May we see you as more beautiful and more glorious. Father, we praise you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.